Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box global election coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Wessner in New York City. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ballot Box. We've got a bit of a, a bit of an omnibus episode, I guess, this week. So we've got a, a couple of second rounds to cover um, that from from uh, elections that we've been looking at in the last few weeks. So we've had the second round of the Colombian presidential election um, to, to go over, and then also the second round of the French legislative elections that we covered in uh, last week's um, episode as well. And we'll also be touching upon the uh, the regional elections in Andalusia, um, which have uh, which have occurred recently as well. Um, so yeah, so this was a big a big election Sunday um, with sort of three significant elections going on. So we'll, we'll break down all of those three as well. Before we do that, um, how is everybody? How um, you're still in Bogota, I believe, um, Andres? That's right, and that's where I got that clip of wonderful music that um, people will have heard at the beginning of the episode. Yes, still in Bogota, rainy. Doing field work, it's exciting. Was able to witness like the second round of elections here, so good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hear it's really hard in the UK. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, 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 <laughs> I I I frankly wish it would rain as to mm-hmm. get some of the moisture out of the air mm. and uh, cool things down a bit because the UK when it's hot is horrible because it's humid. Mm. And, we don't have, <laughs> and they don't build houses with air conditioning. <laughs> um, I've got I've got my twenty pound fan from Argos running on the floor right now to try and keep me refreshed. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we're we're also in the in the in the grip of uh, industrial action, which is sweeping the nation, um, mm. and which, as normal, gives me. Just, just uh, is is me getting incredibly annoyed at the UK media, um, who, who doesn't seem to realise that when people go on strike, they they don't get paid. Um, it seems to be the kind of the main from the coverage. You would you would imagine that these yeah. these people that just sort of um, are out the evilness of their hearts, inflicting this chaos upon on everyone for no reason. Like, Although one of the interesting things about this not that we want to drag this into like UK industrial politics too much <laughs> is that um, is that the polling is suggesting that people might not actively support the strike per se but more people seem to be kind of like willing to consider it justified mm. or have some sympathy towards it than you might anticipate which I think is is telling that people consider um, it's it's a rail strike, so it's obviously quite disruptive to to a lot of people to travel. But people people consider um, calls for increased pay to be mm. not unreasonable at this time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, obviously there's an electoral element to this as well because there's these two sort of significant by elections um, today and yeah today mm. as we as we record um, mm. and. Yeah, the government is is going very hard on the the idea that that somehow Labour is stirring this up. Um, mm. So yeah, but yeah, uh, maybe we'll have to talk, talk briefly about this uh, next time we join you when we know the results of those by elections. But um, yeah, we should probably get on to uh, get on to Colombia first, I think. Um, so here, obviously. We now know the results, which is that uh, Gustavo Petro has kind of edged ahead um, in the final round. He won 50.4% of the vote um, and has, has declared victory. Um, so you were, were there, Andres. Um, why don't you take us take us through um, take us through events in between the first and the second round? Yeah, for sure. So several things happened. I think the overall story is a really positive one. For, for Colombia, for the region, and also for the prospects of, uh, you know, electoral democracy in very complicated countries. It worked out and, uh, you know, Rodolfo Hernandez ultimately conceded. The current president has said that he'll work with the incoming president. So there's a really a sense of calm and, and I guess positive, like it's just, just generally very positive news, but the di- but the time between the first and the second round was actually a time where we saw increasing tension and the possibility of actual, you know, real kind of, I don't know, uh, 
I guess, like uh, social fervor um, coming up to head in, because of the election or in the context of the election. So the first and the second round should be a time when, um, at least this is what you know theory predicts, when candidates form coalitions and they're active campaigning both on the ground, but also kind of meeting up with different, with, with either candidates or different groups in society that they can then kind of bring into their fold. So they, they generally moderate or they at least form coalitions. Rodolfo Fernandez, who was the, we've already spoken about him in the, that episode that we, where we covered the first round, he went to Miami. He actually left to Miami for, for about like 15 days, two weeks. Uh, or something. It was precious. It was really precious time, but he was away from the country, and that was puzzling. He said it was because he um, his life was under he 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 he, um, he risked being killed in Colombia, and there is a lot of violence that does spill over into elections. It wouldn't have been the first time that a presidential candidate had been killed. In the nineties, there were three presidential candidates who were shot and murdered, um, but it didn't seem very credible because actually um, the candidates who get killed generally in Colombia are center left, <laughs> right? Um, it didn't seem very credible. The more credible explanation seemed to be that he is he was a very clumsy and undisciplined candidate. And his campaign manager wanted to reduce the risk of him um, screwing up uh, through either, you know, uh, either in public appearances or in media interviews. So he had very controlled media interviews um, from Miami. He eventually came back to Colombia, but he, was, he, he had a very low key candidacy. And what I heard from people um, who were following the elections very closely in Colombia was that Hernandez was not doing the work that needs to be done, uh, guaranteeing you know, different sectors of society and coalitions. Gustavo Petro, on the other hand, and his vice president, who's a really astounding political figure, she's a, she's a social leader. She she's now going to be the first black woman who's uh, who, who holds that office. Um, they were doing tons of groundwork, and they were um, traveling the country, having like big you know uh, kind of um, meetings, uh, appearing on TV, and they were also busy. Uh, meeting up with uh, different po politicians in Colombia and trying to in trying to get their 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 backing, their support. They did not get Gustavo Petro surprisingly did not get uh, the support of what is some a candidate who's ran for office, I think three times called Fajardo, who's the most centrist candidate. He's a little, you know, he's very, he, he kind of taps into a certain kind of maybe progressive urban, urban, upper middle, middle class. Um, he's sometimes thought to be like the moral opposition because he criticizes both the right and the left on kind of, kind of grounds of kind of lack of coherence and lack of, you know, and, and excessive pragmatism. A lot of observers thought that, given the option between Brother Fernandez, who who was a bit of a loose cannon, and Gustavo Petro, that he would have come out and supported Petro, but he Petro didn't uh, didn't wasn't able to to get his support, um, which was surprising. Furthermore, um, when it comes to electoral organization, there was a there was a there was increasing tension. Colombia high, um, outsources several parts of the electoral process, not least of which is the, um, the platform to project results in the pre-count, which is a really important part of kind of creating a sense of calm and certainty after the elections, because that's actually the way in which most citizens and media um, know who the winner will be. If the, if, if the difference between the first and second place, the pre-count, if the difference between the first and second place is way too small, is too small, the pre-count won't be able to actually tell who the who who the winner is. But they, it would have to be very very small, below say I don't know, below one percent, maybe below 05 percent, because the pre-count is quite accurate, generally accurate. However, in the in the first round in 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 the legislative vote, which happened at the which happened before the first rounds of presidential voting, um, the 
company in charge of the pre-count had a huge screw up. And so there's a big difference between the pre-count and the actual counting of votes. There's about a million votes that were that were not properly um, allocated in the pre-count. And that, you know, that sounded all of the alarms. And Petro started to create a narrative whereby um, he said that there that there were there were kind of there was evidence of fraud in the election. And this kind of taps into a lot of left-wing or left-leaning voters in Colombia who felt that the system is against them because they've never had a president win, right? And, and there has been political violence against the left, both presidential candidates and at the local level, political violence against the left is really extreme. So, it, it, you know, it made sense to certain left-wing voters. To others, it didn't. I mean, it wasn't, I can't have this, I can't, I, I wouldn't want to commit to a kind of blanket statement that all Petro voters thought there'd be fraud but it definitely raised suspicions of it. Um, then about three or four days before the election, a video starts um, circulating online where there's a projection of the pre-count before the election happens, where Rodolfo Fernandez appears as the winner um, with a 1% margin. And the electoral authorities denied that that video was real at first, which was, which is an insane communication strategy. It's just completely bon like dumb. And then someone who who's who's like an, an electoral authority um, on Twitter said, "No, the video was real, and it was a it was a, it was a test drive of the pre-count system to show um, to show reporters and other and, and electoral observers how the pre-count will look on the day of the election." And so then. The electoral authority had to come out. Um, he's called the registrar. This this figure, who's the one who hires out, outsources the these sort of services. They had to come out and say, actually, yes, you're right. That 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 did exist, but it was just a test drive of our system, and we just used ran randomly generated data that happened to put uh, Rodolfo Fernandez as the winner. But the damage had already been done. And this video and, and the fact that the registrar at first hadn't kind of quelled the, the, the narrative of fraud um, just increased tension. In addition to this, there's a quirk of Colombian electoral law, which is that no uh, polling can be published for a week before the election. So that polling doesn't interfere with results. This period of silence is extremely long, like a whole week. In Mexico, it happens and it's about three days. Um, so that polling doesn't influence, doesn't unduly influence voters' opinions. But a week is really long. So a lot of people in Colombia were basically going, heading into the polls thinking the difference could be really, really small because that's what polling had suggested. Although the last poll had given Petro about a 5% lead, but it was just one poll. And you, we, people didn't know what would happen in that week, right? You're kind of flying blind in a way. So the, there was a catastrophic scenario where um, either of the candidates would win with less than, say, 1% of the of margin. There would be a kind of uh, a narrative of fraud. There's been a history of huge uh, demonstrations in the last two years, um, demonstrations that probably... Um, they're a sign, uh, they're a symptom of a lot of Colombians who are disaffected with the current government, but they're also, but they, and they also helped Petro, but they're also kind of an instance of, you know, potential social unrest that either of the candidates would, would not concede victory and that the country would kind of have this kind of uh, post-electoral social crisis, right? All of these things could have happened and the elements were there. Um, and I was, you know, I had the good fortune of, um, of, of spending time with uh, people from an, a nonprofit organization that's really, really big and that does electoral observation called the Electoral Observation Mission. And they were monitoring different, you know, aspects, you know, different possibilities of, of uh, unrest and violence on election day. And there were elements to suggest that, that it could have been quite, you know, not, not, not have been a positive story at all. And, you know, what happened was in the end, Petro won with 3.25% vote margin. It was a historically high turnout rate, 58% of the Colombian electorate turned out to vote. 
you'd have to go back to the 90s, to the very fraught 1990s in, in, in Colombia to get uh, such a large turnout. And the loser conceded very quickly. Electoral results were projected, were done, um, you know, were, were available to the public in about an hour and a half, the pre-count, which is extraordinary. It was so fast. Um, polling stations closed at four. By 5.30, there was 80% of polling stations that have been counted, and it was clear that Petro was going to win. And even the, the president, who is part of uh, Uribis, like the political current of Uribismo, who's definitely against Petro, he tweeted out that he would help um, the incoming president, Petro, uh, in a smooth transition to, to take over um, you know, the, the presidency. So things could have gone terribly wrong. I think Colombia dodged a bullet, um, but it actually turned out really well, <laughs> which is, you know, it was great news. Um, Petro and, and Francia Marquez had a big speech on election night, and it was a speech that I think sought to energize and thank their supporters, but also to calm uh, their detractors. And he very explicitly said that he was going to be the president for everyone, that he had to, like, um, he had to prove to people who had voted for Rodolfo Fernandez because of fear that there was nothing to fear from the left, that he was going to be the president of everyone. Um, and Francia Marquez gave a very, you know, a really inspiring speech saying that this was the presidency of the nobodies, of the no ones, Black people like her who'd been discriminated against, um, peasants, uh, she, uh, people who, who had kind of... Um, who'd lived at the margins of society or who had been the, the victims of, of violence. It was, it was very inspiring actually. And oh, another thing is that Petro, we've seen kind of like the divisions in the left in Latin America. Petro kind of staked a claim to being part of a non-extractivist left. And he said it in his speech, he devoted at least, I don't know, maybe about like 10 minutes to uh, out of an hour of, to speak about the environment and the importance of sustainable development in Colombia. And he he promised that his government would be one where Colombia would become a world power in sustainability, which was actually very encouraging, I think, for, for some, some of us who look on, you know, who, who are disappointed by certain leftist projects in the region that just kind of, you know, they're 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 they don't even question extractivism at all. So overall, very positive. There's still a kind of afterglow, I think, in Colombia. Um, yeah, that's that's the report. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, that's that's really good to have um, one of us on the ground um, for, for a change, covering it a little bit. Um, yeah, it was really good. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask see if you know anything briefly about the kind of geography of the final results. Um, so obviously, Petro won Bogota, but apart from that, it was mainly like the kind of fringes of the country, so all the coastal areas. Basically, he won and. Then Hernandez like won the sort of center of the country. Um, is this mapping onto kind of historic voting sort of patterns at all, or is this some kind of a new alignment? That's really interesting. Yeah, the electoral map looks fascinating because it's like a it's like a ring of Petro voters at the uh, in the edges of this of the country, and then Bogota in the middle, and then everything else was pro Rodolfo. So the so so on the on the on the western coast, that's the that's the most that's the region of of Colombia with the highest amount of Afro-Colombians, and th that's where Petro won with the highest margin. Um, and it's it's probably thanks to his uh, running mate, who who's very who's a very prominent Afro-Colombian, and she she did you know not only because of her identity but also because what she stands for. And she was an she you know she's uh, she's been a social leader, an environmentalist, someone who's worked for victims' rights. That's also part of the country that saw a lot of um, a lot of violence um, between paramilitaries and guerrillas. That was the highest margin of votes. Um, Bogota is small in the map, but it represents you know a huge amount. It's the it's the second largest electoral circumscription, and the and the and and the largest one is a place called Antioquia which is uh, the largest region and has the second largest city, Medellin. And it's, it's traditionally very conservative. 
And that voted for Rodolfo Hernandez, I think, with the highest margin. I think that's the region where Hernandez got the highest uh, margin of victory. So, yes, it does map on to a historical kind of cleavage, which is Antioquia, which is more of a kind of pro-business, business-leaning sort of um, territory that's also more conservative and has been traditionally allied with, with Uribismo. And then um, places where there's higher ethnic diversity, I'd say, where there's more minorities that voted for Petro plus Bogota, which is the which is like the it, it's the largest city. Um, it also has the largest kind of like, I guess, middle class educated um, Colombians um, who, who who were more pro pro Petro. Yeah. So, and I think actually, if you were to look at the plebiscite for the peace plebiscite you would see a similar uh, yeah you do i actually was just um looking that up while you were talking and yes here, here it is <laughs> um, it's uh pretty much it's a very similar map not quite the same one but yeah pretty similar. and that was also a very close vote mm. correct yeah yeah exactly mm. and i guess like one of the it's hard because in Colombia, there's so many, there's, there's several cleavages that are kind of lined up over each other. But one of them is what to do with longstanding conflict. And the people who voted no for the peace accord are kind of more pro, I guess, law and order type, strong state type um, actions. And the ones who voted for yes for peace are more about social integration. And one of Petro's campaign promises and one of his a kind of an interesting approach in his discourse was that he was going to be the president of social forgiveness. He said, we've had legal forgiveness, like a legal peace accord. Now we need that. We need to make that type of, we need to make peace in a, you know, beyond laws and, and, and through kind of social, through society, kind of through kind of cultural transformation, which is, you know, it's important coming from an ex-guerrilla member himself. He was part of the M19 which was an urban guerrilla group that demobilized, became a political party in the 90s, was mostly killed off by paramilitaries, but who, who was probably the most important party um, in when, when it came to drafting the 1991 constitution, which is still in, in place in Colombia. It's, it's a fascinating history. Um, and some people, I mean, I went to a celebration after after the, the election, and there were mostly Petro supporters who were in their 60s. Mm -hmm. And they had really a really kind of it was fascinating to, to speak to them. Some said that this was the end of the cycle of uh kind of uh, transformation that happened in 1991 with this new constitution, and that this was like the end point of that. And like now Colombia could enter a period where alternation in power included the left, right? And they needed that mm -hmm. kind of constitutional mm -hmm. basis for that to happen. Another another uh, pro Petro supporter who was in her 60s told me that it was a mistake for, it would be a mistake for Petro and his supporters to not understand how, that the fact that some people in Colombia fear the left because they associate it with violence. Yeah. And that it really, you know, it was, it was his historical duty to show Colombians that, left-wing policies can be totally, you know, they're to totally different from the the tactics of the of the Cold War guerrillas that, mm. that had plagued Colombian society. So. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it's absolutely fair. Um, in terms of, it's probably just briefly asking about, um, like, whether he, whether you think he'll be able to Govern particularly easily. This is like a fairly close result. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head what whether Congress has a kind of centre left has a kind of majority that might be kind of friendly towards him. I remember that his alliance did quite well in the congressional election. Um, but like, are, are there any signs that he might struggle with governing, or or do you think that he's in a pretty good place now that he's actually won? Yeah, yeah, no, he's going to have a really, he's going to face a really tough time with, with Congress. Um, he mm. does not have, he does not have a majority. I mean, his, his, his party won a plurality with 20, with, um, 
was it? Oh no, sorry. It won. It wasn't the second largest. It was the second largest group with 27 out of 188 um, mm. con Congress members. And he probably can have an alliance with the Liberal Party and uh, probably like the Greens or parts of the Greens, but he does not have a majority in Congress. Not none. He'll have to negotiate probably piecemeal um, mm. every every bit of legislation and obviously the budget, which is also going to be killer. So. Yeah, I mean that's that's the problem with presidential system. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, and with the, I think the second round might exacerbate uh, or might make it more likely that there's divided government. I remember reading Aníbal Pérez Liñán, uh, who did a survey, who did like a very large um, large study on runoff voting in Latin America, and I seem to remember, it does increase the likelihood of divided government. And that's what's going to happen. The Colombian presidency is still, I mean, there's still a lot of kind of non-legislative actions that can be taken, as as with other parts in the world, the, the executive gets mm. like stronger and stronger. But yeah, no, he's gonna, he's gonna have a hard time. There's going to be a lot of checks and balances that that will slow down his government, etc. Right. And it's only and it's only a four year term with no reelection, mm. um, so that's also you know he has he's only got four years, which is also not very long. Yeah, mm. yeah, no, that's not very long at all. Mm. Well, do we have anything else we want to add to Colombia before mm. we move across the Atlantic? No, I, I have nothing to add. Nothing to add either. Okay, all right. Shall we move to on to France now? Um, so, mm. last time when we left you, we had seen um, a, a first uh, round part part four of yeah. <laughs> oh, four. <laughs> this is the last part, though. Thankfully, um, so no more France after this. Um, last time we left you, um, we just had the first round and the uh, sort of presidential ensemble alliance had uh, and uh, and the left-wing loop had gained about the same sort of percentage of votes in the in the first round um and we were sort of speculating whether or not um, macron was going to be able to gain a parliamentary majority or not that seemed very much up in the air uh, well he hasn't um he's also not really come particularly close either um and and Nupert's yeah. done pretty well but the big surprise i think was how well that um the uh, national rally did um the force yeah. of the of the depends party the far right party um which mm. uh, we knew was going to gain quite a few seats but we didn't really i don't think anybody really expected the like um the sort of 82 seat gain that they've made um in this mm. in this election um so yeah what are our initial sort of thoughts about what's gone on before we sort of get on to how this might impact Macron um, governing for the next five years. I mean, the 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 election hasn't really covered anyone in glory. I think it's probably the first thing I would say. Um, like it's been a like Noop and um, Noop and the Macronists absolutely hate each other's guts. <laughs> um, like there's really no other way of putting it. They absolutely hate each other. <laughs> um, um, Mac, the Macron's um, supporters considered um, Newt um, to be a bunch of extremists, um, particularly their um, leader, um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Um, whereas Newt considers the Macronists to be a bunch of people who, you know, who are essentially have pretended to be centrists for actually governing on a kind of extreme economic liberal um, mm. position um, and are taking apart, you know, um, French, um, the kind of French model of um, social services. Um, I think both of them are probably being a little bit unnuanced about that, but that fight as I think it's, I think they're also both coming from slightly understandable positions at the same time, but that fight has taken them to a place where neither of them were really 
um, going out of their way to engage in mm. um, Republican fronts anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot, like a couple of Macronists said things like, oh, you know, choosing between the far right and noops is choosing between two sets of extremists. Um, Mélenchon had already refused to basically explicitly endorsed Macron in the second round of the presidential election and there were similar kind of murmurings um, to the extent of, um, in, in this round. And what you've seen is turnout go through the floor in both um, rounds of the legislative election and I think therefore Marie Le Pen and the National Rally have crept up the middle in the face of <clears throat> actually quite widespread abstentionism, abstentionism from the supporters of both these blocks. Because what you see is that in areas where Nuke didn't appear on the ballot and in areas where um, Ensemble didn't appear on the ballot, mm-hmm. uh, the supporters of those, both those groups in the majority of cases didn't turn out. Um, the majority of them didn't, didn't turn out. Didn't turn out. Um, so, I think probably the most significant thing about this election really is that <clears throat> Le Pen's strategy of detoxifying the national rally has to at least been successful in a sense that people n- now are basically no longer scared enough of the National Rally and of Marine Le Pen that they will turn out, come what may, to vote for whoever to beat her. They are quite happy to sit at home and let her win Mm -hmm. if it means means, um, rather than vote for someone that they don't like. Um, So, yeah, that's probably the most significant and to some extent most depressing Take on the selection I can provide, but mm-hmm. it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I would agree with that. I mean, yeah, need, yeah, it's basically this is the is the main story. It's this like breakdown of the of the Republican fronts, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, through a combination of her efforts in detoxifying the party and the other parties, just really not getting their act together on this and not Be, following becoming, much, really, more, becoming like, much more lackadaisical yes yeah um, I mean the yeah. thing is she didn't even campaign particularly strongly like the the RN ran a very kind of underground um, election campaign which yeah as much as I hate to congratulate the RN for anything was <laughs> probably the smart strategic voice for just to mm-hmm. keep their head down and let Noop and the Macronists fight it out between themselves over which of them was basically more equivalent to the National Front. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah, the, the National Rallies, like, they gained 82 seats. So yeah. They went from having seven seats to now getting 89. It's Yeah, it's a record seat It's a record seat hole for the far right in France. They, they, the best they've ever done before this was... I mean, I, I've I've discussed this um, frequently on this podcast, but the, the one time that France used PR in the 1980s, they, they won 35 seats. Mm-hmm. So they smashed through that record. Um, but more stunningly um, is the record, like last election, they got eight seats. You mentioned them having seven. That's, that's one down from last time. Um, so, so they lost a seat, but... Um, that eight is the most they've ever won under the two-round system. <laughs> um, so they've yeah. completely smashed through that um, record. The two-round system is one of its advantages is often held to be that it's good at keeping fringe parties out, but obviously we've now reached a kind of critical mass mm. with the national rally yeah. where that's no longer the case. Oh, at least... Well, yeah. Yeah. And we, we can definitely completely see that sort of death of that Republican front in the fact that, so that obviously this is also the most votes they've ever gained, most sort of large percentage of the votes they've ever gained in a legislative election, um, so just mm. under 19%. They gained 13% last time in the first round. So it's not 
I mean, this is a, still a reasonable seat game, but this is not this is not going from eight to eighty nine seats. Um, in 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 this case, this is clearly just because they've become more successful at winning second round contests um, to a, to a large extent. Um, that this isn't holding them back anymore. Um, whereas last time, it it still seemed to to a to a great yeah. extent. Um, yeah, they've gained a bit. They gained in the first round a bit more than a million votes, so it wasn't an, an insignificant more inc- more increase in votes. But yes, nonetheless, they've they've not they, they they've not they're not uh, they're still not um, gaining like then they've not gained anything like the number of votes mm. that you would think would be um, would allow them to smash through mm-hmm. unless people were willing to let them smash through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. If, if yeah. you know, four million votes, which they got in the first round, and they got about they got a, a, a little bit fewer than that in the second round because, of course, they didn't qualify for for the second round everywhere. That's mm-hmm. basically the primary reason that that they lost a few votes in the second round. Is ultimately, yeah. It, this is a country of 60 more than 60 million people <laughs> like, like if people want to vote against the national rally they can vote against the national rally um yeah yeah mm. and they'll there now will be the while they're the third sort of force in the election they'll be the second force in parliament basically because noop won't be sticking together as a parliamentary group um yeah which i think was always going to be unlikely and melanchon has just like pushed for this for them to constitute this sort of formal this single group but the other parties have rebuffed it um yeah as we talked about last week i mean he's uh, many in the ps and the greens are not huge fans of him anyway so this is very much mm. a kind of like electoral expediency for them i think in a lot of ways um so uh, yeah now they will yeah, yeah. form their own groups because they all have the numbers now thank you thanks to this alliance um and- yeah they and they may also really want to kind of do negotiations outside many and so yeah. on so in this very splintered parliament mm. that france yeah. has yeah i can probably see like the, the with the ps and maybe um europe ecology maybe trying to sort of do stuff with macron on a case by case basis especially if like yeah. his other option is working with uh, les republicains or whatever um, yeah i mean yeah depending on exactly what kind of government ends up getting formed yeah mm-hmm. yeah and yeah i suppose also on the results the uh the the PS is is kind of he's really um unhappy with this, I would imagine, given that despite this going into this alliance, which most of them really didn't want to do, they've actually lost four seats. Um yeah. and, uh, which is which is not great um uh, from the which is obviously yeah, it, it's been a bad time for what you might call the, the moderate part of the center left mm-hmm. in general. Um like a few um kind of anti-noop. Um, dissidents one as kind of like left-wing independence um mm. but the but as well as that the um part of the center left that went to macron has also lost a fairly large number of seats so mm-hmm. that, that was what that was the part of his group that lost most of its that uh, that lost the most seats in, in, in essence because the kind of the way that the map of the French results went was that um, they were kind of losing more to the left because of this surging alliance on on the left. Um, I think they even made a few gains on the the centre right, although perhaps not as many as they were expecting before the first round. <laughs> um, <laughs> after the first round, but yes. Um, looking looking at the results, it's kind of interesting to see how. How efficient voting is for each of these qualities legislative mm. ensemble ensemble still seems to be pretty the correspondence between the percentage of votes and the seats gained seems still to be pretty close. It's like 38.5 percent of the vote gained to mm. 245 seats. Um and much more efficient than Nupes. The yeah, Nupes, the yeah I mean two percent that... of the vote and 130 yeah. uh, seats. Yeah, that's that's um, to some extent to do with um, obviously like the second round results, which is what you're quoting, are um, 
are of course um, contained by who qualifies where. So in the first in the first round, they got um, like twenty four point sorry tw- about twenty five percent of the vote. Um, both both those two groupings, but obviously because of the, in the second rounds they're not standing other, other parties are getting knocked out and so, so on and so forth they, they, they're getting more um so yeah i think broadly if you if you look at if you count the first round votes against the second round results is a really disproportionate result <laughs> if you count the, the second round results not so much um yeah interestingly like coming back to the national rally for instance national rally actually got one of the closest to proportional share of seats, which is just like an odd little thing. Um, Noop, in terms of Noop's vote as well, it's also worth briefly noting that um, they have a kind of classic modern left-wing party problem of um, stacking up votes in urban areas. Um, that they, um, The left in France is now very urban. Um, and... So yeah, they they actually won the most seats in the first round of any party because um, yeah they were just able to stack up votes um, and and win a few seats outright. But yeah, in the second round, obviously that wasn't as helpful. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I wanted I wanted to ask you something. Given that we spoke about the the first round of of the legislative elections, and now we're talking about the second mm-hmm. round. Um, and we, you know, when we spoke about the first round, we were talking about like pre- predictions. How, you know, does the second round, the second round of voting when it comes to like the presidential election can be polled, I think, in a pretty standard way because it's still just mm. a kind of another election between two candidates. It's probably even easier than the, the first round. What happens in a, like in a parliamentary election that has two rounds of voting? Like, isn't predicting having like solid predictions much harder or much more expensive. Yeah, it is more difficult. Um, and in fact, you can kind of see that from the result of this election because um, Ensemble, Macron's coalition, has underperformed the um, the confidence interval of all the projections. So um, I, um, I think the worst had him on something like 200 there may have uh, may have, actually you know, kind of think of it. There may have been. I should have checked this beforehand. There may have been one that put him on, put like a bottom major, like two hundred thirty or something. He's got two hundred forty-six. There were a bunch of predictions that had him like getting like at minimum two sixty. Um, so he he has at the very least performed towards the bottom end, um, and, and at least some cases beyond the bottom end of. Of predictions, um, but it is possible to. I mean, in the, these these projections do have a history of being broadly reasonable um, because th- there are statistical methods you can do. We're kind of breaking down the um, the, the battle, the, the polling people, and then breaking down the battles between different types of areas. You know, saying that and trying to kind of say, oh, well, um, you know, there, there, there's going to be a large number of seats that have um, ensemble versus nuke battles. There's going to be a large number of seats that have ensemble versus um, um, national rally battles, you know, so on and so forth. And you can use that to kind of generalize um, results. Um, they've obviously, they've particularly gone off with the national rally. That might be an effect of um, yeah, people on the far right who are voting for far right or right wing populist parties don't, aren't always as honest with pollsters or as willing to engage with pollsters. Um, so that might have caused them some issues this time. But yeah, it, it, it's in those terms. So yeah, there are problems with it, but it's not a completely imperfect practice. It's, it's not a completely imperfect practice. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they they still broadly got the winning alliance right. They correctly predicted that Macron's alliance would be fairly far ahead of any others. Um, just that has different meanings. <laughs> so, yeah. 
again, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, we probably should sort of talk about what comes next as well, because this is yeah. a reasonably like unprecedented situation, I guess, in Fifth Republic terms, because obviously, well, we haven't had a situation since the um, the kind of uh, alignment of the presidential and legislative elections where they haven't won a, uh, a majority, um, where the president's alliance hasn't won a majority. Yeah. But even if you think back to the kind of cohabitation days, they were more like the the alliance which opposed the president won a majority. I don't know mm. whether we've really had this kind of no, we, minority we, government situation before. We have had, there have been minority governments in France before, but those minority governments have been minority governments where the bloc still had a majority, but some mm-hmm. parties within the bloc were sitting outside it. So, for example, yeah. France, Francois Hollande um, had, um, I think, uh, uh, but for the second half of his term, he was technically running a, a minority government because Mélenchon's um, party, the um, um, France Unbowed, um, was sitting was always sat outside his government, um, um, willing to negotiate with it on um, bunch of key stuff, um, but fundamentally still part of the left wing bloc, and so you know you could depend on it for votes for um, at least on confidence issues and things. And then the Greens exited the um, government in the middle of his term as well. And that, that, that was the moment that robbed him of a majority. Um, so, yeah, we haven't... This is a situation unlike that where, um, where it's the whole block that doesn't have a majority, but it still has a, it still has a fairly clear plurality. Mm-hmm. Um, so some kind of um some kind of deal making is going to have to happen because ultimately the government needs confidence and and supply um so macron's been you know trying to kind of do quite heavy stuff he's like there was a conversation earlier this week about whether to have like a government of national unity where um every party's uh, every party would be spoken to and to, you know possibly getting ministers from all of them he even spoke to marine le pen um which um <laughs> you know i think that was basically an attempt at showmanship to prove that that wouldn't work <laughs> which he knew it wasn't going to noops noop at least uh, noop are basically going for a full kind of strategy of no, we want nothing to do with you, and there should be a, a fresh elections as early as possible. Um, basically, ar- arguing that like Macronism has failed, and this is a rejection of Macronism, and like the people don't don't want his program. It's like uh, obviously, I think it's probably fair to say that his program hasn't won a mandate from the public, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's of of the programs that have won a man have not won mandates. Is the program that has least not won a mandate. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it's not. They haven't. They definitely haven't taken up what Noob was offering either. I mean, no, no, fair. they yeah. absolutely have not taken up what Noob was offering. They haven't taken up what the National Rally was offering. Mm. They haven't taken up what uh, taken up what um, the LR was offering. Um, in so um, yeah, so some kind of complex. Deal making the most obvious thing he could do is form a coalition with the traditional centre right, with Les Republicans and its allies. That would give him a fairly clear majority. Um, um, but that involves complications. Is Les Republicans, which is you know now not only you know has. <laughs> You know, was anticipating before the 2017 election that it would be the obvious party to win power after a failed left-wing presidency, and then came second, but was still in a position of main opposition, has now been reduced to the position where it's smaller than left, smaller than Macron's coalition, and now also smaller than the National Rally. Um, are, are they going to accept a situation where they become? Uh, how happy are they going to be to endorse Macron's program and and some of its kind of more controversial ed- edges? It could risk 
it could list risk being swallowed by Macron. It could also, or uh, his allies, it could also risk um, losing significant votes to the national rally. Um, so yeah, the, the the LR is so yeah they've got some difficult decisions. At the same time, as I spoke about in the last episode, whether you think it was honest or not. Macron was trying to pitch more to the left-wing part of his coalition. <laughs> so, like, the irony of the irony of Newt's doing well and National Rally doing well is possibly that it drives Macron to the right, <laughs> um, to, towards the kind of moderate <laughs> towards the traditional centre-right, which, yeah, delightful. Um, but... Um, yeah, whether they're going to be able to kind of pass things like pension reform, which he, he, he's been looking to raise the pension age um, to deal with, you know, demographic issues. He's been, um, you know, tax, you know, other such controversial legislation, whether he's going to be able to even get that passed in law, is I think a, mm. is a question yeah, that's being asked. because she had mm. taken in the presidential election, she'd started sort of tacking to the left on a lot of the kind of... Well, yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, yeah. she's she she's she's been doing this for a long time, really. Like this is part of her, her whole strategy, is to, while still having very socially conservative views on a large number of subjects, it, say things which at least sound left wing. <laughs> we um, on um, subjects like. Um, the economy and, and and social system, little bits of um, you know that 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 itself is combining with bits of what I would probably best describe as like economic nationalism, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, like protectionism, you know, you, like Eurosceptic elements. But yeah, so yeah, yeah, which I suppose yeah. is not terribly unusual for. Just not yeah. terribly unusual for the French right in some ways. Like there is a sort of more of a tradition of that rather than the kind of mm. economically liberal right as well. Um, so yeah, it, yeah, it all makes sense with her whole kind of like moderation strategy, I guess. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there's also a fair a fair bit of pink washing among national rally, right? Um, mm. They kind of like you know um, what do you call it, uh, including LGBTQ. Mm-hmm members who are prominent etc yeah yeah oh yeah and, and also the kind of like um muslims don't won't uh kind of accept um gay people basically kind of <laughs> yeah exactly and also the same reason same way that she's targeted like the jewish community as well using a similar kind of rhetoric as well this mm. kind of like um uh muslims don't fit into liberal society um and we are just defending that, which is which is something that a reasonably large number of far right parties try and tap into nowadays, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 in this particular case, um, so she's not technically the acting president of National Rally at the moment. The the acting president is a guy in his in his um, late twenties who is of Italian origin, so she can claim to have like an immigrant background, you know, things like this, this, you know, pitching towards the young, but also pitching towards um, the rapist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, trying to kind of like claim a kind of, of, um, you know, an inclusivity of of immigrants. Mm Hmm. So, okay. Any yeah. yeah, any more France commentary other than um, no, I think I think yeah, I mean yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, I mean, I think as I think it is worth saying um, again that although this is a real disappointment for Macron and Macronism. This is part of a long history of French anti-incumbency, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think people have many good reasons to not like the Macron presidency or and and Emmanuel Macron himself. But um, but this is not a country that has really really had a history of electing people in straight rows. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, yeah. in terms of 
no one in the history of the French Republic in the history of the Fifth Republic has actually succeeded in running in winning two direct presidential elections and two direct legislative elections in a row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so whether you would call this a win for the legislative election or not, I don't. You know, that you can ha- you can argue about that mm-hmm. um, or you like. Um, it, I, I, it's not. It's not unusual in those terms. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, especially uh, as well if you think about the fact that it's, it's a political camp which is not particularly deep rooted in mm. France, and that so much of his uh, sort of second round support was was very obviously coming from people who just didn't want a Le Pen victory. Yeah, that you can sort of there's not too spectacularly surprising that there wasn't going to be this kind of overwhelming uh kind of vote for him in the legislatures i guess like yeah yeah and, and and ultimately this gets at the kind of modern french problem which is that every single politician is unpopular <laughs> like there isn't a single politician in france that i'm aware of who has net positive approval ratings mm. they they all they, they're all um every single political leader is more disliked than they are liked um mm-hmm. Which, yeah, is is important because it, it tells you everything you need to know about kind of modern French politics, really. Mm-hmm. And what, <laughs> why you why you can get to a situation like this is fundamentally because people people don't like anyone. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I think we've got time to to cover Andalusia briefly as well. Um, mm. We won't go to this one in too much detail because we obviously have uh, covered quite a few sort of Spanish region elections on this on this podcast. Um, but it was fairly significant in that this is a region which is kind of known as a sort of bastion of the of the PSOE, the the central left, mid central left party in Spain, um, which has sort of governed it since the transition um, uh, as well, sort of continuously. And uh, up until the last election in 2018, where it was kind of forced out by a sort of coalition of, of, of the right. Um, and now in this in this election, it's, it's sort of well and truly been sort of swept aside um, by the Pepe and the, the main force of the right, um, which has won an absolute majority here um, for the first time. Um, so, yeah, so this was a this was a this was a pretty, uh, pretty sort of historic win. Um, for the party in this region, um, uh, definitely, and um, and yeah, and a, and a fairly bad result for the for the left as a whole. As the left as a block, it wasn't like that. <clears throat> the socialist votes were, were were particularly leaking to parties further left. Um, there were several kind of uh, were a couple of of lists that ran um, to the left of the of the socialists, but they were see it ended up suffering quite a bit from the electoral system um, in, in that and sort of denied themselves probably their sort of true proportional vote count by not consolidating in, in this one. Um, we also see the continued decline of, of, the, of the Citizens Party, which is once again has lost all of its seats um, in, this, um, in this election, which most of its support having flowed to the pay pay. And um, obviously, uh, a less than anticipated, perhaps, uh, rise in support for Vox. Um, who remember we were talking earlier this year about Castile and Leon was sort of doing very well in that and was kind of forcing Pepe into a coalition. That's not necessarily going to be as um, uh, that's not going to happen this time. Um, the Pepe does not need them to govern. Um, and we have had we've seen. Uh, in the, in the kind of national, because this is not a region which has um, much in the way of its own parties and stuff like this, it's not quite connected to the national scene. And um, at the moment, obviously, like most countries, there is uh, a kind of uh, sort of quite serious economic problems coming at the moment. And the uh, the Pepe has recently changed their leader to one which is seen as a bit more sort of uh, a bit more moderate um, as well, and um, combined with the fact that the regional leader in Andalusia is, is also a fairly popular figure and has been leading the government in coalition for the last four years, they seem to be able to have pulled off a bit of a, um, a bit of a victory, which sort of uh, is a 
is a good sign for them going into the uh, into the kind of big election year, which is coming next year for Spain, um, with many regional and local and, and national elections as well. Okay. It's um, it's kind of I don't know. There was a sense that Pepe was on its way out in a way in regional elections. I think in, mm -hmm. in this clearly it, it's a it's a huge comeback, right? Mm. For that, yeah, mm. in, in this traditional Pessoa heartland. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I was reading some stuff from after the election as well. That obviously there has been a, there is a shift to the right, which has been going on for a, a, maybe almost like a decade or so. So at this point in Andalusia, um, but there is also this sort of compounded in this election by the fact that uh, sort of traditionally left wing areas saw a turnout decrease, whereas traditionally right wing areas saw a turnout increase in the same election. Mm -hmm. Um, which has, which has sort of, yeah, which as I say has compounded the the shift which had been going on um, yeah. to the right as well in the last is of victory. Is is that shift in Andalusia in part to do with um, what in other countries might be called the education cleavage? I would imagine Andalusia mm. is a place that probably has fewer degree holders than average in, in Spain. Is is that perhaps one of the things driving this, or oh, have you not really read into that in detail? Yeah, yeah, mm. this, is, this is part of it, and there's a few things as well that, other than that, there's this, but there's also the um, the fact that well, so obviously that this has always been a region which is favourable to the left, but the, the 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 socialists became pretty entrenched here in the first place because they took a very strong line on. Um, Andalusian um, kind of regionalism and, and bringing autonomy to Andalusia in the first place back in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. And they really, mm. um, they really kind of, uh, sort of sidestepped the other main parties at the time at this, at this point of view and um, overtook them, took a really strong stance on this and it sort of established themselves as the, uh, as the kind of defender of the region in this place. And yeah, just the fact that it was also part of it is the fact that they've, been out of government for four years and ceded that role to um, the Pepe, um, who has who mm. really kind of taken it and run with it, um, especially as they are kind of oppositional to the centre as well, uh, that they have been able to do, 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 do engage in quite a lot of this sort of rhetoric as well, has, has helped them out. Um, to yeah, I wonder if, I, I, I was thinking about that as well, I, I wondered if the um, new leader may may also be playing a role in that but it, of, of the kind of national payback because mm. as i understand it as you mentioned he's considered to be something of a moderate it was kind of it was an interesting thing when he got chosen because um the they previously got kicked out in part because he was um seen as not the right person to deal with vox and they've chosen someone more moderate than he is, um, but from what I understand as well as being as well as being more moderate in most ways, he's also like one of the few Pepe leaders who's considered to be like a little bit devolutionist because he's like yeah. the form, he's the former he's the president of Galicia, yeah, yeah, he's well, the former, so yeah. 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 yeah president um, of Galicia, which is one of the few Pepe wings which is like really enjoys. Um, it's autonomy status, as I understand it. <laughs> yes, yeah, and it's he's he's been fairly decentralist within the Pepe as well, and tending to like because they do have a few regional leaders, and we talked about Madrid and and Diaz Ayuso last mm. year. Um, that that are sort of quite good. I think he's been sort of. Uh, as well, have been taking a bit of a kind of uh, sort of a, keeping the, the sort of reins loose, I guess, a little bit when they know that they've got a good um, kind of popular figure, as they did here. Um, in um, to, and, and that, of, that like, that's probably also a good way of handling any dissent mm. as well, because mm. um, that's certainly been something that's been a problem in the Pepe of late. It's like yeah. So if you can, given that they've got this kind of now a very broad coalition where he's mm -hmm. you know quite quite different from the party base on like a lot of issues um kind of makes sense to kind of start just like giving all the all the all the regional wings a lot of autonomy yeah 
So, yeah. mm -hmm. so you kind of loosen the bits where you can kind of rub up against each other. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Um, I said, yeah, there's the, the one other thing as well is this like it is about is about this sort of dealing with Vox. And obviously we saw the first Pepe Vox coalition formed earlier this year in, in, in region. Um that there was a lot of being kind of messaging going on as as if you vote for the Pepe, this keeps Vox out of government. If the Pepe can reach a majority, then we don't need we won't need to work with Vox. You don't have to deal with Vox, that kind of thing, um, as well, uh, which is which maybe has been as as uh, been influential in 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 getting some voters to to go over and, and concentrate their votes in in the pay pay to kind of avoid avoid that scenario as well, um, which which they have done. And um, so yeah, uh, which is it is a very nice which the national pay pay leadership would be very glad of um that they don't have to um deal with this question again because that was obviously incredibly controversial in the party whenever um the sort of having to work with vox comes up um as well uh yeah yeah so i think we'll we'll maybe wrap it up there unless anyone has anything else they want to they want no. to add on that one no okay um so yeah next week there is there is no elections for us to cover so what we'll be doing is um something which I, I feel that fans of the podcast may like which is we will be taking the electoral systems and we will be ranking them and deciding which one for which for for good we will be deciding which one is the best uh, giving the definitive answer um, on that. Um, we're also thinking about um, maybe putting up a bit of a poll as well um, in preparation so that you can feed into this as well and and, and maybe have your say. Um, so look out for that on Twitter as well. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Um, yeah. So yeah, until then, um, and please do, as, as normal, please do rate and subscribe wherever you listen. Um, really help, out, help us out. Um, but yeah, we will see you then. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you.